only being a disciple and making disciples was as easy as cloning yourself. If only if it was that simple, that all you had to do was go in lab, give them a couple uh, uh, pints of blood, and they could produce a disciple for you, that you could say, hey, I'm done. I've done my part to fulfill the Great Commission. If only it was that easy, man. It, it, our, our mission as a church would be over. We would have it all complete. The, 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 the idea of making disciples, in fact, this is the final words of Christ before he ascended into heaven, was not for just us to be disciples, but it's for us to make disciples. But as many of you know, it is hard work, and it takes energy, and it takes effort both to be a disciple and to make disciples. It's what the church has been trying to do for 2,000 years. It's what we as a church have been trying to do for the history of our church is to go out and to make disciples. And the truth is, it's not easy. It takes time. It takes commitment. It takes effort. And it's tempting to look for these shortcuts. It's tempting to say, hey, if we could just get folks to walk an aisle, then we'll count them as making a disciple. If we could just get folks to attend vacation Bible school, we'll count them as disciple. If we could just get them to, to show up and do this one thing, then we'll count them as disciple. And it really, over the past several months, kind of thinking about this idea of making disciples and, and what that looks like for us as a church and for us as individuals, we've really been challenged with this idea of what does it look like to be a disciple? What does it look like to not just be labeled as a disciple, but a complete disciple? Are we as a church making not just disciples, but complete disciples, well-rounded disciples? And so this morning, uh, we're going um, to look, I'm going to shock some of you, um, because I know some of you, your Bible just automatically fell open to the book of Proverbs, because we've been there for almost a year now. But this morning, we're going to be in the book of John, and we're going to look at the very first chapter of the book of John, and the very last chapter of the book of John, because what we're we're going to do is we're going to see this complete process of discipleship that uh, Peter went through from the very beginning all the way to the very end. What does it look like to be a disciple at the beginning and what does it look like to be a disciple all the way at the end of the time of Jesus? And so if you've got your Bibles, why don't you go ahead and turn with me John chapter 1. Uh, we'll start in verse 40 and read through 42 and then we'll flip over to John chapter 21 and read verses 15 through 19. And I shared with you, we've been in the book of Proverbs for almost a year now, and some of you have been with us through that, and some of you are new with us this morning. That's great. We're excited to have you. Um, but don't worry, we're, we're going to be out of Proverbs this Sunday. We'll be out of Proverbs next Sunday because we have deacon ordination. Um, but then we'll come back to the book of Proverbs. We've got about three more messages that I want to give to you out of the book of Proverbs, and uh, then we'll, we'll finish up that book. So if you're, if you're still cravings in Proverbs, hold on. They're, they're coming. Um, if you're done with Proverbs, then enjoy today and, and next week and then um, we'll, we'll finish up that book pretty soon. But uh, John chapter 1, starting of the, the conversation of Jesus and Peter, starting in verse 40, says that Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard John and followed him. He first found his own brother Simon and told him, We have found the Messiah, which means anointed one. And he brought Simon to Jesus. When Jesus saw him, he said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which means rock. And then we're going to flip over from the very beginning all the way to the very end of the book of John to chapter 21, picking up um, in verse 15. This is, is after the crucifixion, after the resurrection. Um, in chapter 21, verse 15, it says, When they, being the disciples, had eaten breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said to him, you know that I love you. Feed my lambs, he told him. 
A second time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, he said to him, you know that I love you. Shepherd my sheep, he told him. In verse 17, he asked him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved that he had asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep, Jesus said. I assure you, when you were young, you would tie your belt and walk wherever you wanted. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will tie you and carry you where you do not want to go. He said this to signify by what kind of death he would glorify God. And after saying this, he told him, follow me. Let's pray together. God, this morning, I pray that we are overwhelmed. God, this morning, I pray that we will come because we want to be at your feet more than anything else. God, this morning I pray that we are so overwhelmed by God who loved us and gave everything for us that we will not be content with where we are at in our walk with you, God, that we will not be content with the knowledge that we have of you, God, that we will not be content with anything that we have right now because we know that what you have for us is so much better. And so, God, I'm praying just simply this morning. God, speak to our minds. God, speak to our hearts. God, this morning as we work through this text, I pray that as you speak to our heart and to our mind, God, they will speak to our feet and we will walk out of here with a mission for you. God, I pray this morning that we are challenged, not just as a church, but we are challenged as individuals to be a disciple that does all three of the aspects that you see and that you've shown us in the life of Peter. And so, God, I pray that you speak. God, I pray that we bask in your glory, but that we listen with open ears and open hearts this morning, Father, so that we may be the disciples that you have called us to be, God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. A few months ago, the U.S. Army uh, was carrying out several swift response training drills. And uh, some of you may have heard about this. They were doing it in different places all over the world. Some of them were actually right here in North Carolina. But they were trying to do all these drills all over the world all at the same time to see kind of what their response would be in various situations. And one of the, one of the drills that were carried out uh, was by the 173rd Airborne Division. Um, and their job, their mission in this training exercise was that they were to capture and seize and secure a decommissioned air, um, airfield right in, in Bulgaria. So in Bulgaria, there was this airfield that hasn't been used um, for a long time, and they, they were to descend on it, they were to take control of it, and that involved not only getting to the airport, but securing the airport. And there were several buildings, like most airports, um, there were several buildings there that were government-owned, and so they would have to go in and they would have to clear out these buildings, make sure that no enemies we're in these buildings, all right? Now, if you're in the military, you, you've probably done these training kind of exercises before, and so you kind of have this idea of, listen, we're going to go here, we're going to do this, we're going to strategically go through these buildings one by one and clear them out and make sure that if there's anybody in there, we, we hold them like we're supposed to and all this. 
And so this group of men, this 173rd uh, Airborne Division, descended on the airport. They, they made sure they got their establishment location. And then they started clearing out these buildings. But even in their mind, as they were going through these buildings, they knew that the majority of these buildings were going to be clear. There, were, there wasn't going to be anybody there. Like I said, it was a decommissioned airfield. There wasn't going to be folks there. If there was folks there, they were staged there, right? They were part of the training exercise, right? And so they would occasionally put a couple folks hiding in a corner over here, a couple folks there. So you had to real quick identify whether they were good guys or bad guys, whether they, were, whether they had weapons or not had weapons, and whether they were on your side or against you. So you have to go in and get these, these folks and, and kind of interrogate them real quick and then continue securing your location. And so the 173rd Airborne Division, they did this, they, they descended on the air uh, field, they started working through these buildings, and, and like they expected, most of the buildings were completely empty. Occasionally they would come across one or two people in a building, and so they would do what they were trained to do with those folks. And then they came to this one building, and they, they um, knocked open the door, and they were kind of surprised to find these men in there working on machines. And there was this whole group of men in there doing stuff to these machines, working on these machines, and uh, these men were shocked. They, they, they kind of had this real look of panic on their face, and as imagine most of you would if, if you were sitting wherever you work, and all of a sudden the U.S. military busts through with, with full armor, all right? And so these men were shocked, and they just throw their hands up, and they keep telling these guys, we don't know what you're talking about. We are just factory workers. And of course, the, the military is trained. You don't always just take the first thing that somebody says, right? So, so get down on the ground, search them for weapons, and somebody stands here and holds these guys in this pronate position while the rest of the guys go and search through this building. And they find a couple more over here that are, fact, that are you know, working on machines. They go to another room. They find a couple more that are, that are working on machines. And so they, they hold all of these men. They kind of get them, make sure they're not in any weapons. They, they start kind of interrogating them, trying to get information out of them. And finally, after a certain amount of time, somebody in the division comes to this building and says, whoa, we, we, we've got a problem. And the guy's in charge like, what do you mean we've got a problem? And he said, the problem is this building is not part of the training exercise. You see, there was a certain area that these guys were supposed to work in. The mission was only to encompass the buildings that were on the certain complex of the, air, of, of the airfield. But these guys have overstepped that boundary. They actually went off the airfield, and they had actually stormed, not knowing to them, they had stormed a, a civilian-owned factory that was really just making olive oil machinery. Right? And so all these guys who said, we're just factory workers, they were telling the truth. They had no idea the U.S. military was showing up or that they were doing this stuff next door to them, much less in their own building. And so, of course, you can imagine that the, the citizens and the, the factory owners were not very excited about this. The, the Bulgarian government was not very excited about this, that, that some of their uh, civilians have kind of been held um, in this military exercise. And so they, they kind of blasted the U.S. Army for this, and the Army responded by this. They said, we sincerely apologize to the business and its employees. We always learn from these exercises and are fully implementing rigorous, or excuse me, we are, we are, let me start that again. We apologize, we're always learning from these exercises and are fully investigating the cause of this mistake. And he went on to say that we will implement rigorous procedures to clearly define our training areas and prevent this type of incident in the future. You see, the biggest problem was that some of the men did not have a clear understanding of what the mission was. They didn't have a clear understanding of this is what the mission is, and everything out here is off limits. You're, you're not going over here. This is the mission. 
this is not. This is where you should be, and this is what we're going to be doing, and everything outside of this is beyond us, right? It's not what we are doing. It is for somebody else to take care of or somebody else to worry about. This is your focus. This is your mission. So the, they had to, the, the part that they had to learn was simply what is the mission and what is not the mission. That, that if you're going to go on a mission before you start it, you need to have this very clear understanding of this is the mission, this is the scope of the mission, the parameters of the mission, and we're going to stay within this. We're not going to get sidetracked with anything else. We're going to stay right here. And this is true whether you're talking about a military mission or even the mission of making disciples, that we've got to understand what the mission is, what it includes, and what is excluded from it. You see, and that's the first thing that Peter has to do to be a disciple, is he's got to learn what the mission of Christ is. And see, we're going to kind of look through this. Peter, like so many Jews in those days, they had to learn the mission of Christ was very different than what they were expecting it to be. You see, John shows us in the very first chapter about how Peter is introduced to Jesus. And he's kind of introduced to Jesus through his brother Andrew. Now, Andrew is a disciple of John. Now, we as Christians, we tend to think of disciples as these 12 men who just followed Jesus around. And we tend to separate them. We tend to think like this was something new or this was something different. But the reality is in the ancient world, that wasn't new and that wasn't different. Almost every religious leader had disciples. Every rabbi had disciples. Okay, And a disciple is simply someone who follows you around and, and writes down or makes mental notes of what you say. They are a student, okay? And so if you were a respected rabbi, if you were a respected uh, religious leader, you would have disciples. You would have a group of two, three, four, sometimes ten guys that would follow you around. And literally that was just, if you walked from one town to another, they walked right along behind you. And they would either write stuff down or they would talk with you. And, and their whole goal was to learn everything that you had to teach them. And typically, you would, you would be a disciple of a rabbi for maybe a year, maybe two years, with this goal of learning everything you could because you wanted to be a religious leader. You wanted to be a religious lawyer. You wanted something in the end. And so you kind of you paid these guys to be your teachers, right? School wasn't free in those days, right? You had to pay for this. And so if you wanted to be a disciple of a particular rabbi or religious leader, you went to them and you told them who you were and you told them who your family was and you told them all this stuff and then you offered to pay them X amount of money to, to follow them around, right? And that doesn't mean that he covered all your expenses. That just means that, like, he, you're going to pay him because that's how he makes money. And, and then the rabbi would get to decide either, yes, you're in, come on, pay me the money, or no, you're not, which honestly happened more times than not, right? More people got rejected from being disciples than got to actually be disciples. There just weren't enough rabbis to go around and, and do this process. And so John the Baptist is not a, a rabbi, if you will, in the in the true sense of the word. He's not a um, a, a Jewish religious official in the sense that, that he has some official title. But he has this group of men who said there's something special about John the Baptist, and we want to know more about him and what he is believing. And so John has his own group of men. We don't know how many of them there are. We don't know their names except one of them. We only know one of them's name, and his name is Andrew, right? And then there's this other guy who's talked about in this story right before what we read. He's just the other guy, 
which is kind of funny because we, we never know his name. It never tells us his name. It always says Andrew and one other disciple, or John and Andrew and this other guy were there, right? And Andrew must have been a pretty close disciple of John because uh, we find him in chapter 1 right next to John. And John is uh, seeing Jesus walk across the, the seashore, and he points to Jesus. This is the second time he's done this in the ch- first chapter of John. He points to Jesus, and he says, there's the Son of God. There's the Lamb of Israel, right? That's the phrase he used. That's the lamb. And so Andrew and this other guy, whoever he is, we don't know him, right? We don't know his name. Andrew hears this, and this other guy hears this, and they're like, oh, that's the one you've been telling us about. That's the one that, that you've told us is coming for all this time. And so Andrew leaves John, and he goes after Jesus, right? Andrew and this other guy, again, we don't know his name. They leave John, and they go after Jesus. And, and, and kind of the, the, this idea of, hey, we want to follow you now. We want to learn from you. And so they, um, they begin asking questions. They begin to try to find out about who Jesus is and what's going on. So they, they leave John, and that's where we pick up the story that we read in chapter 40. Andrew has this... His brother named Simon Peter, and in verse 41, he goes back to tell Simon who he's found. But I want you to read verse 41 with me because there's a title that Andrew uses to describe Jesus that's just amazing at this point in the story. In chapter uh, 1, verse 41, says that he, Andrew, first found his own brother Simon and told him, we have found the Messiah, which means the anointed one. And Andrew, he doesn't tell Peter, hey, listen, I found this new rabbi that I want to follow. I found this new self-help guy I want to follow. I found this, this new expert that is supposed to be great. He doesn't use the term rabbi. Instead, he uses the word Messiah. And for us, we're so used to that word being used for Jesus, but for Peter to use that word, or for um, Andrew to use that word to describe Jesus this way this early in the gospel is tremendously amazing because what it means for them is, listen, Andrews is telling Peter, he's like, listen, we found him. We have been waiting for hundreds of years. Prophets have been telling us this anointed one has been coming for 700 years and we haven't found him yet, but guess what? I found him. Peter, you've got to come with me because we found the one who God has sent for us. We found the one who, who, who has been promised us that all of our generations, all our parents and grandparents and great-grandparents, they've all been looking, and we found him. And I want you to come and meet him. And for Peter, he just can't not go. Because for Peter, as soon as he hears this word Messiah, just like every other Jew in that day, there's one thought that goes through his mind. And it's simply this, this is it. This is what we've been waiting for. Because when the Messiah shows up, it is not who they think it's going to be. But when the Messiah shows up, that means that pretty soon there's going to be this call to arms. Pretty soon this Messiah is going to send out this message to all of Israel and say, hey, get your, get your spears, get your swords, get your, whatever weapons you can use. Get ready because we're about to go to battle. We're about to go to war. And we're going to kick the Romans who are here. We're going to get rid of them. We're going to kick them not only out of our territory, but we're going to push them so far out of our territory, they're going to come begging us to be their occupiers. We're going to overwhelm them such 
massive ways that they don't even see coming. And, and so you need to get ready for this. This is what Peter is thinking when he hears, have we found the Messiah? Hey, we need to go find this guy. We need to go talk to this guy because guess what? He's going to send out this world, this message, and, and there's going to be this huge battle. And guess what? If we go talk to him, then we might get to be some of the commanders in that army. Like we could get into the upper echelons of what's getting ready to happen. We're getting ready to go meet the man who's not only going to defeat the Romans, kick out the oppressors, and get rid of this ruining tax system that we've been under. We're going to meet the man who's going to rule the world. And if we get in early on this, then we might get to be part of his kingdom. We might get to be commanders in this army. We might get a, a position in his government. And so when Andrew is telling Peter, he's, listen, we found the Messiah. Peter says, let's do it. Let's go. And so Peter goes with Andrew and he meets with Jesus and in verse 42 of chapter 1, there's this small conversation that happens. And that's all we have is this conversation that happens between Jesus and Peter. In verse 42, he says, When Jesus saw him, as soon as he saw him, he says, You are Simon, son of John. I'm sure Peter wasn't wearing a name tag that says, Hi, my name is Simon. Right? But Jesus knew him, and he knew who he was. And he says, You are Simon, son of John, but I'm not going to call you that anymore. Instead, I'm going to call you Cephas. I'm going to call you the rock, all right? I'm going to call you Peter as we know him, all right? So I want you to notice what Jesus doesn't say in this conversation. Jesus doesn't say, your guys are right. I am the Messiah. He, he doesn't say, I'm the one you've been looking for. He doesn't say, yeah, I'm the leader that you've waited 700 years for, and, and now it's time. I'm the one you've been waiting for for 700 years, and now because you guys have come, you get to be my second and third in charge. He, he doesn't indicate in any way that he is who they think he is, right? He, he doesn't claim that title. They give him that title, but he doesn't claim it. Instead, he changes Simon Peter's name. And then if you read Matthew's account of this story, Matthew says that he offers him an invitation. But the invitation is not to pick up arms. The invitation is not to be this commander in battle. Instead, the invitation is two words. Follow me. That's it. Follow me. You see, because what Jesus knew that Peter didn't know was that the mission that Jesus was on was very different than what Peter and the rest of the Jewish world had in mind at that time. Right? That he wasn't coming to be this political military leader that was going to overwhelm anybody else. And so what Jesus invites Peter to is, listen, come and, and, and follow me. Come not to conquer, but come and learn. Come and learn not who you think I am, but what I really am and what my mission really is because you need to know that I am the Messiah, but my mission is very different than, the, than what you have pictured in your mind. You see, I I am the Messiah, and I've come to destroy your greatest enemy. But let me tell you, your greatest enemy is not the Romans. It's not the Roman army. It's not the Roman tax. You need to understand that I'm coming to liberate you from the oppression that you have, but it's not the taxation that you are under. It's sin. It's spiritual that you have to deal with it. And so I am coming to destroy all of that. But understand that it's not the physical. It's the spiritual that I'm going to be dealing with. And so you need to learn this, and you need to come follow me. And so for the next three years, follow me. Follow me into the darkness and see the spiritual realm in a way that you never encountered it before and realize in that that I am control over all of it. Follow me into a storm that would cause you anxiety. Follow me into a storm that would cause you to question your life choices. Follow me into the storm only for me to wake up and show you that I am complete control of all the wind and all of nature. But don't stop there. Follow me all the way to the cross. 
to the most humiliating, painful death torture that anybody can ever conceive of or has conceived of up until this point. He says, follow me all the way to the cross and know that, that I came and I died not for myself but for the sins of this world. Follow me even still beyond the cross and the death. Follow me even because the grave will not hold me and three days later you're going to see me raise up again. Follow me and see that I am the Messiah and I'm coming to liberate you from sin, death, and the grave. Follow me and know that I'm the Messiah that it can break every change. Follow me and know that my job is not to, to restore Restore you to a political power, but it's to restore you in a relationship with the Creator that made you and loves you and cares for you. Follow me and learn this is the gospel that I've come for. This is the mission I'm on. It's not to make you a success, it's not to make you a political leader, it's not to make Israel the envy of every nation. It is simply to restore and to build the gospel. It is simply to, to, to open up the chance for you to have a relationship back with the God who cares for you and loves you. Follow me and you need to learn who I am and what I'm really all about. You see, this is where the discipleship of Christ starts. That we follow Him and we learn who He is and what He's about. You see, many of us came to Christ. Many of us are questioning Christ. And we have this preconceived notion of who Christ is. And the world outside of this building, the world all around you, all, everyone has an opinion of who Jesus is. Right? If you walk to IGA and you ask somebody who Jesus is, they're going to tell you. They all have, everybody has an opinion of who Jesus is, all the way to he didn't really exist, to yes, he's this, to yes, he's that, to this, he's this. But the invitation is not to come and see what the world thinks about Jesus. The invitation is you need to come be with Jesus and see who Jesus really is. Who does Jesus say that he is and who does Jesus, what does Jesus say? This is the mission I'm on. You see, a disciple cannot be a disciple if they're not one to follow and to learn from him. A Christian cannot be a Christian if they don't know who Christ is and why he died for them. A believer cannot be a believer if he doesn't know what to believe about Christ or the gospel of Christ. The song that we just sang a few moments ago where we cry holy, holy, holy makes no sense if we don't understand why we sing that song. If we don't understand the holiness of God and the holiness of Christ, then the gospel will make no sense to any of us. If we don't see that our biggest need is not financial riches, it's not a political riches, it's not a military mind. If we don't see that our biggest need is salvation from our sins, that we turned our back on God and Jesus says, no, I came so that he can bring you back. If we don't see that as our biggest need, then we don't see a need for Christ at all. And the invitation is, come, follow me. Learn that this is what I am about. This is the gospel that I came and lived a sinless life to give that life up so that you may live, to learn who Christ is and to learn the full story of the gospel. This is how discipleship starts. And we have to learn who Christ is and what he's all about. Not who we think he is, not who the world says he is, but who he says he is. And if we're going to be disciples, if we're going to make disciples, then we have to follow that. We have to start there with follow me. Learn who I am and what I'm about. Because the more we learn about Him, we'll find the more that we fall in love 
with him. You see, that's the second part of being a, a complete disciple of Christ is to love him. Peter starts his discipleship journey with this invitation of come and learn, but that's just the invitation to learn, but that's just the start of it. And, and for Peter, it's kind of this amazing thing. It wasn't come and learn. It was come and experience, come and be part of it. For you and I, it's come and read about it and come and learn about it. For Peter, it was be part of it and experience. And then we get to the last chapter, and this conversation changes drastically between Jesus and Peter. You see, the invitation to come and learn, but in chapter 21, this last conversation that Jesus has with Peter and really it boils down to this one question and the question is this out of all that you learned what's been the result of it in John chapter 21 it's the final chapter of John's gospels and and he records the last things that happened before Christ ascends he doesn't record the ascension of Christ but he records these last things in fact this is the last conversation that Peter has with Jesus before he ascends before he goes up on the mountain and, and hundreds of people see him ascend into heaven and it starts a little before that, you see the disciples, um, Jesus has died, he, he's rose from the grave, and he's appeared to them a few times. Uh, the disciples kind of go back to the roots, because when Jesus is sitting around, they don't really know what to do. They, they just followed him for three years, and so the, the disciples are sitting there, and they're like, well, what do we do now? And Peter said, well, I, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go fishing, because that's what I do, and that's what I grew up doing, and that's what I know. And so him and the disciples, the, the ten of them that are still alive, they get on the boat and they go fishing. They fish all night long, and they don't catch anything. Now, some of you can testify that. Some of you have been there. You have fished all night long and caught nothing. And then in the morning comes, they see somebody standing on the shore, and he yells out to them. He's like, you've caught anything? That's the worst thing you can ever ask a fisherman when they've caught nothing, right? How's it going? How's your luck going, right? And yet this is what this man calls. Have you caught anything? And they're like, no, nah, man, we ain't caught nothing. And, 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 and this is not scripture, so I'm just going to This is the Michael Rakes version of what's going on in his head, okay? No, nah, you know, this, this, these fish, they must be out doing something else. Like this, there's always, if you talk to a fisherman, there's always some excuse of why they've never caught nothing. It's never them, right? I don't know. If maybe I'm the wrong kind of fisherman. Maybe I've fished with the wrong people. There's always some excuse of why it's not the fisherman's fault, okay? And so this person who on the shore yells out, he caught anything. The, fish, the disciples are like, no, we haven't caught anything. And the, disciples, and the man on the shore is like, well, throw your nets on the other side. Yeah, like we hadn't thought about that already. Like, like, really, you're on the shore. We've been out here all night long. You don't think we've thought about this, and, and maybe they're, they're just on this side. And so like, fine, we'll just entertain this. So they throw the net on the other side, and they catch so many fish on the other side of the boat, they can't even pull the thing in. And suddenly it dawns on them, this person on the seashore, the beloved disciple, which is John, tells Peter, he says, listen, that's Jesus over there. Like, nobody else would know. Like, they didn't have depth finders and fish finders like we have today. There, nobody would know that the fish were right here. We just need to cast on this side. That's Jesus. And so if you read this story, which we didn't read this part of it, Peter is just so excited that Jesus is there. He jumps off the boat, and he swims to shore, which is kind of bad for the rest of the guys because they're like, no, okay, like, are we following him, or do we take these whole boatload of fish back? And so the rest of the disciples, they take the boat, and they dock the boat, and Jesus and Peter, he's gone. And he just jumps in the water, he takes off, and he gets to Jesus before anybody else does. And, and so then Jesus, by the time he gets there, Jesus already has breakfast cooked for him. He's already got fish cooked for him. And so they sit down, and they have breakfast together. And this is a very sweet time that they are having this, this after the death, after the resurrection, after you've seen me die on the cross, and Peter jumps out of his boat, and, 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 and they're all sitting there for breakfast together. But they've got to understand that at the end of chapter 21, 
Peter's time to learn from Jesus and who Jesus is, this is really the end of it, right? This is all the learning, the time that he's got. After three years of following him, seeing him die on the cross, seeing his resurrection in chapter 21, this is the last conversation. And so really it boils down to this. What difference has it made? You see, Peter has now learned the boundaries of the mission. He's learned that Jesus didn't come to conquer uh, the Romans. He came to suffer so that others could conquer. He came to give up his sinless life for sinners uh, to, to, to escape the punishment of their sins. He came to, to see and do battle on the cross with the agony of the cross. And he came to defeat and liberate, not from the Romans, but from sin and death and hell and all of that. And he says, now listen, Peter, now that you've seen all this, I've got a question for you. In John chapter 21, verse 15, Jesus asked Peter this burning question. And it's probably one of the greatest questions of all time. And he says this simple question that not only for Peter, but for all of us, we need to ask ourselves this. In chapter uh, 21, verse 15, it says, When they, Jesus and all the disciples except Judas, you can read that story later. When, when they had breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And the wording that Jesus uses in this question is extremely important because the word that Jesus used for love in this verse is the Greek word agape. Right? And agape is this unconditional love, this love that, that is unbound, this love that has no strings attached to it, it has no limits attached to it, that, that you really love uh, unselfishly, that is all-inclusive, that there is nothing that's off the table when you love someone this way, that, that you're not loving because you got something, you simply love because you want to in this situation. This love has no limits, it's fully, it's all-inclusive, but I want you to hold on to that because we're going to see how that ties in. And then he ends his question with these three words, more than these, okay? Now, it, many people will say that what Jesus is doing is he's looking at these 10 disciples and he's looking at Simon Peter and he's saying, Simon Peter, do you love me more than these 10 men love me, all right? And, and they'll kind of limit Jesus' question to a comparison between Peter's love for him and these other men's love for him, right? But i got to be honest with you, when you look at the Greek of this verse, it doesn't have to be that way. Right? It doesn't have to be a comparison. It, it simply says, do you love me more than these? Right? Which could be, do you love me more in comparison than these men do? Right? But it could also mean this question. Peter, do you love me more than these men sitting here? All right? Which means, do you love me more than you love this group of men that you have become part of their family and part of who they are and part of their community for the last three years of your life. Which one, if you had to choose between me and them, do you love me more than you love this community and this family and this group that you have? But it could also be an open-ended question, do you love me more than these, not limited just to the people, meaning do you love me more than this? This breakfast that I provided for you, this grace that I gave you, do you love me more than the fish that you just hauled in because I told you to? More, do you love me more than all the blessings that I have given you? Do you love me in this unconditional kind of way? And what he's really looking at, Peter, are you satisfied with me? Are you just satisfied with all this other stuff that you get with me? Or do you love me 
more than you love this group of men, this, this community that you've gotten to be part of, that you wouldn't have gotten to be part of if it wasn't for me? Do you love me more than this breakfast that I provided for you? Do you love me more than, than all the other stuff that I've given you? Do you love me without any of that stuff? Am I enough for you? Do you love me just for me? Am I sufficient for you? And see, the timing of this question is so essential because the idea here is this is complete discipleship because the question that Jesus really wants to know is, Peter, listen, you have learned so much about me in the past three years, but what I really want to know is what you have learned caused there a reaction in your heart. Has it transformed into an unconditional, all-consuming love for me? Is what you filled your mind with in the past three years caused your heart to be connected and to love me in a way that you never thought possible before? You see, I know this question is directed at Peter, but really it's the question that we should all ask ourselves. Do we love God this way? Do we love Christ this way? If it's what we learned about God and what we've learned about Christ produced a love for Christ and a passion for God in our hearts that's all-consuming, that is unconditional, do we really love Him with all of our hearts? And we kind of get these other follow-up questions. Do we long for Him? That's really what he's asking him here. When we come to worship, do we come to worship because this is what we do on a Sunday morning? Do we come to worship because we want our kids to grow up in this lifestyle? Do we come to worship because people are expecting us to be there? Do we come to worship because we're part of something that's going on? Or listen, do we just come to worship because this is the place, this is the time, and this is the moment where we just get to sit in the presence of God and just enjoy his presence like no other time in your week? That's what he's asking. That's what he's looking for. Do you love me enough to long after me, to be in prayer and to commune with me? Not because you're told to, not because there's this checklist to do, not because you're told this is what it looks like to be a Christian, but simply do you love me enough that you long for me, that you want to be with me, that you want to communicate with me? Do you love him enough that when you hear his name, it produces an emotion in your heart that you love him, this unconditional love, that there's nothing attached to all the blessings, that you simply love him for who he is? Let me ask you to you a different way. If heaven were nothing but you and God for all of eternity, would you still want to go? If there were not streets of gold, if there were not crystal clear seas, if there were not pearly gates, if none of that stuff and there wasn't banquet foods and bacon hanging on trees and all this stuff that you pictured heaven being, if it was just simply you and God there, would you still want to go? Now let me take it a step further. For many of us, one of the things that we're looking forward to when we get to heaven is seeing people who have gone on before us. That, that we have in our mind that we're going to walk up to these pearly gates and, and the pearly gates are going to open and there's going to be mom and there's going to be dad and there's going to be aunts and there's going to be uncles and grandmas and grandpas and there's going to be all these people who went before us that we've been longing to see. We've been waiting to see them for, for 10, 15, 20 years. We've been waiting to see them. It, it, let me ask you this question. If you got to the pearly gates and they opened and none of them were there and it was just you and your Savior... Would it still be enough for you to want to go? To spend all of eternity with nobody else except the one who died for you? Do you love me like that? That's the question that Jesus is asking Peter. Or do you just love me because of all of this stuff that's coming with me? 
Do you just love me because I give you grace? Do you just love me because you get a community and a family to be part of? Do you get to love me? Do you love me because you're going to get to be with all these other people for eternity? Or do you just want to be with me? No strings attached. No conditions. If everything else was off the table except me and you, am I sufficient for you? That's what it looks like to love God with all of your heart. That's what it looks like when he asked him this question, do you love me? Several years ago, I was talking with a youth pastor, and, and we were kind of talking about this idea of why so many youth leave church after they finish high school. And the numbers are, are kind of astounding. The percentage of kids that, that drop out of youth, and I use kids loosely, but uh, the, the number of kids that, that drop out just stop going to church once they reach college age. Now, the good news is the majority of them will come back, but they will take this time off and during college and right after college. They'll come back when they start having kids. But we kind of got this, this discussion going of, what do we do about that? Why is that happening? And so the discussion kind of took this fold because we have spent so much time teaching who Christ is that we forgot to teach them to love who He is to fall deeply and passionately in love with Him, so much so they couldn't imagine not going to church. They couldn't imagine not spending day with Him. That they couldn't imagine a time that when they sinned, their heart ached within them because there was a separation between them and God. You see, we spent so much time learning facts in our head and teaching them biblical knowledge and teaching them who Christ is, we forgot to show them what it looked like to fall deeply and passionately and madly in love with Him. You see, the answer to the dropout rate of churches is not more programs to learn who He is. It's not more programs to memorize scriptures. It is simply to love Him in a way that you love Him more than anything else, and you cannot imagine not being with Him. That's the answer to churches that are falling apart. That's the answer to churches that, that are missing folks. That's the answer to the churches who, who are seeing people come and then they leave because we need to teach them that part of being a disciple is to love Him unconditionally and that we want to spend every moment with Him that we have. See, but discipleship is not complete with just learning about Him. Discipleship requires that we learn about Him and that produces a love and a passion for Him. But it does something else for us. You see, it produces this love that changes the way that we live. I read a quote this week that said this, that love makes you do crazy things, insane things, things that in millions of years you never thought you would see yourself do, but you do them anyway. I don't know if you remember when you were young, and uh, maybe you have to think about another young couple, but I want you to think about couples and the crazy things they do when they're young and they fall in love with each other, all right? I grew up in Stokes County, and, and all of us rode in pickup trucks, okay? You either rode in a pickup truck or you, or you rode with somebody that had a pickup truck. That's what we had, all right? And this was back in the old days where the pickup trucks, they didn't have four doors. They only had two doors, and it was just one seat all the way across, right? But everybody knew the most comfortable seat in that pickup truck was the driver's seat or the next seat over by the window. Those, those were the two seats. There was this seat in the middle, but it was always hard, all right? I don't know why they couldn't figure out how to make that softer or easier, but it was always hard, all right? And so as I was a kid growing up, I, I noticed these, these weird things that teenagers did. The, the guy would be driving, and the girl would be sitting on the hard seat. Now, I'm the youngest brother, all right? I'm the baby of the family. So most of the time, guess where I had to sit? On the hard seat in the middle, because I was the shortest one, so my legs would fit there, right? My brother, he's 6'2", his legs wouldn't fit. So I hated that seat, and it made no sense to me when I would see this boy and this girl, uh, who, this girl who voluntarily sat in the hard seat or on the hard seat, 
just to, to ride. Like, why wouldn't you slide over three more feet and be in the comfortable seat? You could hang out the window over there. But over here, there's nothing. There's just a hard seat. But they were in love. And they slid over, and it was worth all the discomfort for that 30-minute ride just to be next to each other. Just so he could put his arm around her, and they could be together for that 30-minute ride down the road. And it just it made no sense for them to do that, but it, she was willing to sit in the uncomfortable seat to sacrifice her own comfort because she loved him. You see, girls, let's be honest, boys, I'll tell you a secret. Girls do crazy things. When they're in love. I've seen girls write a boy's name over and over and over. I've seen them fill up an entire notebook with nothing but his name. It makes no sense to me. I don't understand that at all. But i got to be honest with you, girls, boys do just as crazy things. right? Crazy things like boys will, will work overtime. They'll get extra jobs just so they can go blow their hard-earned money on a set of flowers and an overpriced dinner or maybe a, a, what they think is an expensive piece of jewelry then, but it's really just a cheap knockoff. And they'll go spend all this money. They'll blow all this money on you because they love you. And it makes no sense logically. And, and sometimes they even do crazy things like they'll give up hunting trips to go on dates. I don't get it. But let me tell you, some of you ladies, you're just as crazy because you went on hunting trips. You sat in a deer stand for hours with no weapon just to be with the one you loved. Love makes you do crazy things, insane things, things that you never thought in a million years you would ever see yourself do, but you do it because you love the other person. You see, most of us, if, if we're honest, I'm not going to ask you your confession type, but most of us will admit, or maybe we won't admit it, but most of us, if we're true and we're honest, we will say, yeah, we did those things. There was a time in our lives that we did those things. We spent money that we normally wouldn't spend. We, we uh, went places that we normally wouldn't went. We listened and talked about stuff that we normally had no extra thought about. And we didn't even want to be part of that conversation. But we did it. Why? Because we stepped out of our comfort zone and we did things differently because we were in love. You see, when we love someone, we give them much more emotion and there's so much passion that it changes the way we live in a way that is evident from everybody else, in a way that's evident for the rest of the world. When, when two people walk into my office and they start talking about getting married, I always ask them this question, why do you want to get married? And don't tell me it's because you love each other, because I already figured that part out. I saw how you came in here and you batted your eyes with each other. I saw how you held hands. I, I see how you talk about each other. You see, it's evident when you love somebody because the way you act changes around them. And so the truth is that if we're going to love somebody with that much passion that we're willing to change things about us, then how much deeper should our love for Christ be? If we're willing to change who we are and what we do and the, the positions that we go and the things that we do for someone else, shouldn't we be willing to love Christ and live it out in a certain way, in a bigger way? You see, the challenge is that, that Jesus doesn't stop with this question of, Peter, do you love me? He asked him that question three different times, and most people will tell you the reason Jesus asked him that question three times is because it's before the, res or before the cross. There are three times that Peter denies knowing Jesus, and I don't even know the man you're talking about. And so for many folks, they see this connection. There's three times that he denies him. Now here's three times that he affirms his love for him. But after every single time, in verse 15, 16, and 17, every single time there's this imperative that follows. In, in verse 15, the, the full verse, I'll read the whole verse for you. It says, When they had eaten breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said to him. 
you know that I love you. And here's the imperative. Feed my lambs, he told them. Two more times he asked this question, in verse 16 and verse 17. And every single time the answer is, yes, Jesus, you know. You know everything and you know that I love you. And there's always an imperative that comes after it. If you do love me, then live it out this way. What's interesting is that all three of those verses, the imperative is just slightly different. In verse 15, the imperative is three words, feed my lambs. In this one word definition of what feed means, or excuse me, this definition of what feed means, it means to promote in every way the spiritual welfare of others. And so in this one, he's talking about the lambs. And the lambs, of course, are younger sheep, baby sheep. And so the focus of this love, live out the gospel in a way that nourishes and cares for and, and protects the little ones. Feed the little ones. Feed the young ones. Feed the ones who don't know the gospel. These are the lambs, of course, that he's talking about. Feed the innocent ones. Take care of them. And live out the love that you have for me in a way that shows that you care for the least of these. You see, this is what living the gospel looks like. It means that we tend to, we care for, and we promote the spiritual welfare of children. You see, this is why we partner with groups like the Pregnancy Center, because this is what they do. This is the reason we partner with the West Rowan Bible Teachers Association. This is what they do. This is the reason that we as a church, we have the Awana program and the Gospel Project for Kids. This is why we have a youth ministry and a youth group. This is what they do. So if you want to live out the gospel, then get involved with one of these groups and feed the lambs. Because that's what you do when you love the Savior. Then we skip on to verse 17 for just a moment. Because in verse 17, the imperative is just slightly different. What we find is the verb is the same, but the object is different. In verse 17, it's not feed my lambs, it's feed my sheep. Feed the verb is the exact same thing, but the object is changed. It's not just the little ones, this is the whole flock now. Feed everyone. Care for everyone. Make sure that everyone is nourished. All the sheep of all ages. Make sure the whole flock is getting fed, that they get what they need. You see, this is the reason that we do the Gospel Project for Adults on Sunday morning. This is the reason that on Wednesday night, in a few weeks, we'll start our equipping classes and our men's and women's uh, small groups. This is what our mission teams do. This is what it means to live out the Gospel. And if you want to live out the Gospel in this way, then if you want to live out the Gospel because you love the Savior, then feed the sheep. Get involved with these groups that are doing this and feed the sheep because you love the Savior. But if we want to skip back to chapter or verse 16 for just a moment because in verse 16, the object of 16 and 17 is the same, but the verb is different. You see, the object is still the sheep, but this time the verb is different. Verse 16, the imperative that comes after the, yes, Jesus, you know I love you, is to shepherd my sheep. The Greek word here, shepherd, is where we get the term pastor from. And it doesn't look like that in English, but that's what it's for. This is more than feeding them. This is caring for them. This is overseeing them. This is ministering to them, not just for their their, uh, food, but for everything, for their mental, their physical, their spiritual. This is is what our deacons do. This is what our bridge team is doing. This is the reason we're going to have hot dogs and cook uh, cook hot dogs. And this is the reason we're going to have backpacks and bounce houses. Because we want to care for our community because we want to get to know them and we want to share the love of Christ with them. This is what happens when we send teams on mission trips either in North America or across the world. This is what it looks like for for us to hold on to the gospel, for us to live out the gospel. It means that we get involved in these groups and we shepherd the sheep and we shepherd the sheep because we love the Savior. 
You see, the point that Jesus is making is that this love has to be lived out. Our love has to be lived out in some tangible way that makes a difference, not just for us, but for those that are around us. And sometimes that is hard. Sometimes it makes us move outside of a comfort zone. And honestly, sometimes it makes us move out of our safety zone. And in fact, that's the, verse, the reason he tells in verse 18 and 19. He's saying, listen, Peter, you need to know. You tell me you love me, and I'm telling you to go do these things. But you need to know it's going to take you a place you don't want to go. Your love for me has to be so strong because you're going to die for this love that you say you have for me. You're, you're going to be killed because you're living out the gospel. You, you, you've got to understand that, that Peter, you, you need to understand that, that Peter's love for Christ has reached a point where nothing is going to be held back, that Peter's willing to give everything. It's going to cost him his life, and Peter's willing to give his entire life, give up everything because he loves the Savior that much, because he learned who the Savior was. You see, what Peter learned was this is what the gospel is really all about. What Peter learned is the gospel of Christ is about Christ's unconditional love for us, the fact that he held nothing back from us, that he sacrificed his own life for us. And that's what Peter learned by following him for three years. And that's why Peter loves him so much. Because when Peter had nothing to account for righteousness, Jesus stepped in. When Peter could not get back to the, to the God who made him, Jesus steps in. When Peter had all of these sins that were holding him down in burden, Jesus steps in. And Peter says, I love you because you did all of that for me. And guess what? I love you enough that if I've got to do the exact same thing for you, I would do it in a heartbeat. If you called me to leave this Westerland, East Iredale area, and if you called me to move halfway across the world, Jesus, I love you enough, I would do it in a heartbeat. If you called me to go be a martyr and give my life for you because you gave your life for me, I would do it. Jesus, if you called me to go across the street and had an uncomfortable conversation with a neighbor, I'd do it because I love you enough to live out the gospel in a tangible way that makes a difference in everybody's life that's around me. You see, we can't live for something that we don't love, and you can't love something that you don't know. And complete discipleship has to involve all three of these. It involves that we learn who God is and what the gospel is. It involves that love God so deeply and passionately that we can't imagine a day or a time without Him. It involves us living out this gospel in a tangible way that touches those that are around us. And I shared this message with you to challenge you to be that type of disciple. A disciple that learns, a disciple that loves, and a disciple that lives out the gospel each and every day. But I'm sharing this message with you today specifically because next or this coming Saturday, we're going to have our annual celebration. And this is our focus for this coming year. We want to make sure that as a church, we're equipping you to be these disciples that learn to love and to live. We want to make sure that we are helping you be a disciple who learns who Christ is, who loves Christ more passionately today than ever before, and a, a disciple who will live out the faith. And we want to make sure that we are building disciples and making disciples who do this, because this is what complete discipleship looks like. This is the pattern that we see that Jesus works out in the life of Simon Peter. And this is the pattern that we as a church are going to work out in all of our discipleship programs. And so I'm inviting you through this message to come Saturday and hear kind of the details. What is this going to look like for our church over the next year? How is it that we as a church are going to learn more who he is? How is it we as a church are going to fall so deeply and passionately in love with him that we couldn't imagine anything else? How is it that we as a church are going to live out the gospel in a way that changes not only the world around us, but the world in everywhere? 
What does it look like for us as a church to be complete disciples, to learn, to love, and to live? Let's pray together.